1: hello and welcome back to the breaching extinction podcast for those of you that are new here the breaching extinction podcast explores the plight of the endangered southern resident killer whales through interviews with the people trying to save them there are currently less than 80 southern resident killer whales left and they are currently threatened by lack of prey vessel noise and water toxins all of these factors impact one another and play a significant role in their population decline. They have historically spent much of their time in the Salish Sea, however, they've been seen less and less likely forced out of their home by lack of prey as well as busy and toxic waters. I'm your host, Erica Worth, and I decided to start this podcast in 2019 after spending a summer working in the Salish Sea and learning about these animals. Each week, I dive into a new conversation with guests from varying perspectives, I approach these topics through an interdisciplinary lens in hopes of uncovering the intricacies of this complex issue. Through this, I hope to share insight as well as fit the puzzle pieces together needed to save this species. I hope you guys enjoy this podcast. If you have any questions or are interested in being featured on the podcast or sponsoring us, please reach out over Instagram at Extinction or send an email to info at breachingextinction.com. Thanks! And welcome back to the Breaching Extinction podcast, everyone. Um, this week I have David Bain here with me. Um, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what your current role is?
2: Okay, I'm David Bain. Uh, I have a PhD from the University of California at Santa Cruz and I'm the chief scientist for Orca Conservancy. And in my role as scientist, I do research and uh, provide advice on policy matters, uh, so the Orca Conservancy can take science-based positions on issues, you know, like um, you know fishing policy and uh, breaching dams and, and you know pollution control and. Oil spill risks and things like that.
1: Nice. How did you get into this line of work?
2: Um, see, I went to colleges as an undergraduate that encouraged undergraduate research, and uh, did my research with bottlenose dolphins, and then uh, was supposed to do a month-long project on killer whales, and that's been going on for over forty years now.
1: Amazing. Where did you go to undergrad? Uh,
2: I started at new college in Florida and then transferred to the University of California at Santa Cruz.
1: Okay, nice. I I went to Eckerd College and I also did Bottlenose Dolphin in my undergrad with Moat and then with Eckerd as well. So you work with Orca Conservancy now and you've shared a little bit about kind of the goals of the organization, but for those who are not so familiar with Orca Conservancy, um, can you tell us more about the organization and like, you know, what kind of projects you guys work on and how you help the Southern residents?
2: Okay, well, uh, we're a nonprofit and, you know, our mission is to protect killer whales around the world, but we focus on Southern residents Uh, because their population is probably in more trouble than just about any other population. Um, We were one of the litigants to try to get uh, southern residents listed under the Endangered Species Act. So, you know, we won that lawsuit and uh, got the Endangered Species Act protection for them, which led to getting a critical habitat. Um, we we're also involved in the rescue of Springer, who's a northern resident who was orphaned and isolated from her community. So, um, you know, we put together the plan to send her back home and uh, help raise money to um, get her back home. And uh, I guess she's been back with her pod this summer and has two calves since she's grown up so that was quite successful. Uh, Another big effort we got involved in was uh, eliminating uh, net pens from Washington state. So we were one of the groups involved in uh, getting legislation to prevent non-native fish from being farmed in Washington waters. Uh, We were also uh, opposed to putting uh, tidal energy units in critical habitat. So that's another one of our policy victories. Um, We're currently doing research on uh, whale watching policy and how that affects uh, the whales because there's kind of a trade-off involved between reducing impact from uh, commercial whale watching and uh, at the same time uh, reducing protection from non-commercial whale watching and we're trying to find out what the balance of that policy is unfortunately um, whales haven't been in the areas where they get watched very much this year so right. um, you know, kind of what the policy is is relatively moot. Yeah, uh, We've also been involved in breaching the Klamath River dams and Um, We're trying to rebuild the salmon populations there, and uh, we're also working on uh, trying to get the Snake River dams removed uh, to try to increase returns to to the Snake River and the Columbia Basin in general. Um, We participated in the Killer Whale Task Force process to work on a wide range of things that could be done to benefit killer whales in Washington state. Um, We also are involved in things like beach cleanups and uh, helping out with restoration work to improve salmon spawning habitat on a small scale to uh, try to make more food available to the whales. So really have quite a lot of irons in the fire.
0: You
1: absolutely do, that's incredible. Um, so it sounds like you guys have had a lot of success um, in policy. Obviously, it's very important that we use science when creating policy. Um, what, like, what do you think makes you guys so successful? Because I know there's a lot of other people that have tried to implement different policies and not have the same success.
2: Well, I think we focused on the battles that we can win Um, So, you know, you don't want to win all of them because that means you're passing up ones that you could have won on, but, um, you know, you do want to win a lot of them because that means you're not wasting your time uh, doing things that aren't going anywhere. Right. Uh, So, you know, I think, you know, we avoided engaging in the Snake River Dam's debate for quite a while because... There wasn't a pathway to success on that. But, um, you know, I think in recent years, there's been recognition that um, you know, there are ways to uh, remove the dams and protect people from the negative consequences of that. And um, you know I think with the increased urgency to recover southern residents, uh, there's more willingness to consider that. So, you know, we kind of think, you know, now is the time to be moving forward on trying to reach agreement on how to do it and the timeline for it. And, and you know, we now have data from the Elwha Dam removal uh, showing how well salmon recover from that. And, uh, you know, we have the precedence of all the stakeholders working together on the climate to reach agreement on, uh, how to do dam removal there. So, um, you know, we're hoping that, um, you know, people can kind of look at the needs of the whales, look at the needs of the fish and look at the needs of the people and put together a package that meets everybody's needs.
1: Absolutely. Uh, that gives me a lot of hope to hear you say that. Cause I have felt the same way about the lower snake river dams. This isn't going to happen. And I'm glad that you guys, Now, see that as an effort worth pursuing because it could maybe happen. Um, So, you know, obviously, you guys have learned a lot from the Elwha and the Klamath um, dams going down. Um, So, I'm assuming you guys are able to carry some of that knowledge into this next endeavor. What have you learned from those two experiences?
2: Um, Well, with the Elwha, you know, it's kind of shown what the timeline is for uh, salmon recovery and, you know, the precautions that need to be taken in the course of dam removal. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, one of the issues with dam removal is you've got a lot of sediment stored and that sediment's going to wash downstream. And, you know, the high turbidity is bad for salmon. Uh, So understanding, you know, how to regulate the flows so that you get some sediment in the water, but not too much. And uh, you, know, you have side channels available that can stay clear for the salmon. Uh, so they have somewhere to go when you know, these clouds of mud are coming down the river. Um, you know, One of the I guess, less expected benefits was that when the sediment reached the sea, it formed great spawning habitat for forage fish. Mm -hmm. Meaning that when the salmon get out to sea, there's something else for seals and sea lions to feed on besides juvenile salmon. Mm -hmm. And then uh, when the adults that are out at sea, they have something to eat themselves. Mm -hmm. So the Elwha really gave us insight into the ecology. And then uh, working in the stakeholder process uh, on the Klamath, um, you know, we got to see what people are looking for from the tribal perspective, uh, you know, from the irrigators' perspective, and from the conservation perspective, and you know, importance of mutual respect in that process, and uh, trying to make sure that um, you know every drop of water was used efficiently, so the endangered species got the help they needed. Um, but uh, the farmers also got the, as much water as they could possibly get. Uh, mm-hmm. Once the endangered species got uh, what they needed, and, and the tribes got the opportunity to have more fish uh, to meet their cultural needs, and you know to make sure we respect their treaty rights, and, and you know I think going through the process where you know you are trying to you know find a balance that meets everybody's needs and, you know showed that even though the farmers were going to get a lot less water uh, than they used to um, it set up a way that they recognized why that needed to be done and you know it was not that uh, the environmentalists were trying to beat the farmers it was Saying, you know, the fish need this, the whales need this, Mm -hmm. and, you know, we want to do the best we can for you at the same time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that mutual respect, I think, was important and leading to results that everybody could live with. Unfortunately, Mother Nature's had other ideas this year, and she's not giving us enough water for anybody. Right. So you know we're expecting close to zero survival of the salmon going out to sea, and you know, zero water for the farmers, and uh, there you know other endangered fish called suckers that live in the lake, and uh, even those fish may not get enough water this year.
1: Oh wow! And
2: you know, similarly with the Sacramento that you know they're expecting, you know, juvenile survival to be quite low and then, um, you know, the water may well be too warm for the adults coming back this year, which would lead to at least two years in a row without uh, significant numbers of juveniles going out to sea. So, uh, you know, things are getting pretty desperate there and, you know, that means that we're going to need to manage fisheries differently. Um, so there's uh, another uh, policy matter we're commenting on known that was Amendment 21, which sets the base for, you know, how much fish should be available to killer whales in the north of Falcon area. And, you know, that was kind of put together with the assumption that there would be fish south of Falcon that they could be feeding on too. we're looking at those fish not being there right meaning the whales are going to need to find more fish in the northern part of their range and that means we need to make sure more of those northern fish are available to them
1: yeah that's a lot of a lot of elements you got going there um well I mean it sounds like we've learned a lot and hopefully we can carry that knowledge I think the biggest thing that kind of stuck out to me is you know hearing you talk about finding compromises that work for everyone Um, because I think that's something we've struggled to do with the Lower Snake River so hopefully we can carry that into the next um, or into removing the Lower Snake River dams. Um, So Orca Conservancy is working on a new hydrophone project. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how that information is going to help us? Uh,
2: Yeah so there are a lot of things we can do to protect the whales if we know where they are. Yeah. Uh, for example, um, you know we're worried about uh, what recreational whale watching boats might do around whales, and if we know where they are, uh, WDFW can send their enforcement boats to the right place to address that. Uh, we're also concerned about shipping noise and. You know, the shipping industry has expressed willingness to slow down, to operate ships more quietly uh, when they're going by whales. But obviously they need to know where whales are. Right. Uh, You know, the Navy has military exercises that they do that make dangerous levels of noise. And, you know, they're not trying to hurt the whales. So if we can let them know that the whales are in the area, then they can suspend their exercises. Uh, there are construction projects that make dangerous levels of noise and you know again, that's something they have to suspend operations for a few hours while the whales go by, they're willing to do that. Um, but they need to know when the whales are there. So what we're doing is collaborating with Microsoft on a project to uh, have computers recognize whale calls and that will let us, Uh, feed a lot of hydrophones uh, into the cloud and then uh, we get emails when there are potential whale calls detected Mm -hmm. and then we can have human experts review uh, the sounds the computer's detected and uh, if there are southern residents we can confirm that and then uh, the computer sends out emails to user groups so that way, if whales uh, go through somewhere at night, uh, the WDFW officers can uh, come in in the morning and go, Oh, you know, the whales came into Harrow Strait last night. Um, you know, we need to be headed to the San Juan's today. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, if there's a construction project in Seattle, then, you know, we can let them know, you know, the whales are. Probably going to be there from noon to two. So if you have something that makes a lot of noise, uh, you know, get it done before noon. And then, you know, you can spend a couple hours doing maintenance and quiet things while the whales go through. And then if you have anything you need to finish up at the end of the day, you know, the whales will probably be out of the way by then. And that lets them do their work efficiently. And, you know, the Navy knows the whales are coming. Then they can, you know, plan the quieter parts of their exercise while the whales are going through, and then they can resume being noisy after the whales have cleared the area. Um, you know, we're also concerned about the expansion of the fast ferry fleet in the Seattle area. So if we can let the fast ferries know that um, you know the whales are along your route, uh, then you know they can go a little slower and. Um, maybe uh, try to change the course they take to avoid the whales Mm -hmm. so by knowing where they are we can do a lot of things that implement their safety and then uh, you know we can also try to use the system for research purposes so um, you know I mentioned the Klamath River is a river that It's important to southern residents and you know we try to set up some hydrophones down in that area to get a better idea of how much time they're spending there and one of the things national marine fisheries cares about is you know whether whales are actually eating chinook salmon where they happen to be and you know they don't really have any data from the klamath river area so if we can tell them you know hey the whales are in town now Uh, they might be able to send somebody out to collect scale samples and determine which runs the whales are feeding from. Um, Also, uh, there are groups that put hydrophones on the bottom with automated recording systems that uh, collect data for a year at a time and then they have to analyze that and, you know, the computer can go through the data more quickly than people can and while we're sleeping
0: yeah.
2: um, that gives us a way to um, expedite the analysis of that data relative to the way it's been done so um, you know we see a lot of value to the approach and um, you know we're working on optimizing the automated technology so it makes mistakes less often because yeah sometimes it hears something and says, I think this is a whale and listen to it and go, no, that's not a whale. You know, we don't need to tell everybody to, um, gear up for the whales being in the area. And, um, you know, the better the computer is, the more hydrophones a single person can monitor is, you know, I can listen to, you know, one or two hydrophones pretty easily and keep track of the whales. But, you know, if we have to get like 50 or 100 hydrophones out to tell us everything we need to know, um, you know, that's not something that we can listen to all of them at the same time, but the computer can, and, you know, it tells us, you know, when there's something that we need to pay attention to, and then, you know, we can focus on the hydrophone where the whales are, and, and, you know, that lets one person do a lot more, and, you know, given that they're... A limited number of people who know all the southern resident calls, um, you know that kind of lets us set up a 24/7 schedule where somebody can monitor and get right on the detections and mm-hmm. make sure that everybody knows in time. And you know that's going to be especially important with shipping because they're going 24 hours a day, so they need to know right away where the whales are. And right you know, for the construction workers, you know, they need to know when the whales are in the area and if you can tell them at the start of the workday what they're likely to need to worry about, uh, that really helps them get their work done and, you know, helps them do it while the whales are not around and, you know, prevents the whales from sneaking in and getting hurt. So, um, you know, they only need to be informed a couple times a day, so it's not as important that there's continuous monitoring for them, but you know, with the different user groups there are different needs and, and you know, We're trying to, you're up to meet all of those needs.
1: Absolutely. That sounds pretty incredible. Like that's a very efficient way of doing things. Um, are you going to inform them when the transients are in the area as well, or is this just for Southern residents?
2: um currently the computer is detecting transients as well Mm -hmm. uh the regulations are different for transients and residents so um you know the um who needs to get notified is different and you know for wdfw you know they may Go out and protect transients if there are no residents to worry about, but their resources are limited. So, um, you know, if they have both residents and transients to worry about, as we did a couple of days ago, then you know they would want to direct their effort uh, towards the residents.
1: Absolutely. How many hydrophones are you guys planning to put in place? And is this just on the U.S. side, or are you doing it on the Canadian side as well?
2: Uh, we're just focusing on the U.S. side, and there are other groups working on the Canadian side. So uh, we've been working with Microsoft, and we've had a, a lot of great volunteers from Microsoft helping us out. And uh, you know Microsoft is picking up the cost of the computer end of things, but uh, Google has a parallel effort, and they're working with uh, Canadian groups to do similar work there.
1: That's awesome.
2: And then, um, you know, our work is open source, meaning that anybody can look at what we're doing and try to build on it. Uh, So, you know, the people at Google can uh, build on our ideas if they want to. And, uh, you know, somebody at a university somewhere could kind of pick up uh, where we are and, you know, try a different approach. And, you know, if that works better, uh, they can let us know and then. We can adopt that and and, try to get to something that has the computer getting things right more often, or can tell us there are transients here and residents there, and and, we've had some bird calls show up on our hydrophones, so there may be a bird researcher that would like to get notified that they're you know, birds are making noise, at a particular place at a particular time. So, um, you know, we're also sometimes picking up ships that need maintenance, and that's something where um, you know we might be able to notify the you know ship that you know, hey, your propeller is really squeaky, and uh, you need to fix it because you're making a lot more noise than you need to.
1: Nice. But that's really awesome. So it sounds like this could ultimately end up benefiting us in a lot of other ways that we didn't expect.
2: That's awesome. Right. So, uh, um, you know, it's kind of sometimes mistakes are a good thing and, and yeah. you, know, you get kind of a diversity of uses and, um, you know, we're working on making the most of it.
1: Absolutely. So when do you guys plan to implement these hydrophones and what's kind of the timeline of this project?
2: Well, we've got three that are up and running right now. Um, you know, There's a fourth one that um, we had uh, in the water but uh, it was paired with a camera and uh, there was a breakdown in the camera. So that system's in for repair. So it'll probably be October, that gets uh, connected to the cloud. And then uh, we're looking at uh, trying to get uh, two or three additional hydrophones in Puget Sound this winter and uh, start getting hydrophones in on the outer coast Mm -hmm. uh, probably next spring.
1: Nice. Um, Are you guys just waiting on that? As
2: funding comes in, we'll expand the array further.
1: That was, yeah, that was my next question. Is it a funding thing? Um, Is, so if anybody who's listening to this wants to help with this project, is there a place where they can go and donate um, to help fund these hydrophones? Uh,
2: Yeah, they can go to uh, orchidconservancy.org and uh, there should be a donate button there that they can uh, click on and make a donation. Awesome.
1: Are these like fairly expensive? I mean, I'm sure they are expensive. Um, And do you guys usually get your funding from grants or is it a combination of sources?
2: Yeah, Orca Conservancy gets its funding from a combination of grants and donations. And some of the donations we get are from corporations like Microsoft and uh, other donations are from individuals and then uh, some are from partnerships where um you know we'll work together with the business to um you know try to raise money that we can use to help the whales
1: that's awesome um that's that sounds like you guys have a lot of sources well i will definitely put the link in the description of this episode. So if anybody wants to go contribute to this project, go click that link and you guys can donate to them. Um, so that's really exciting. I'm glad to see this project coming into fruition and I think it will be very helpful. Do you plan to save all of like the information that you collect from the hydrophone and you know potentially somebody can study that later on?
2: Yeah, and actually uh, what we're saving is accessible to the public already. Uh, So there's um, an AI4Orcas.AzureWebsites.net, which is where the potential uh, calls the computer detects are made available. And uh, we have candidates, uh, which are calls that Uh, We haven't had a chance to review yet. And then there's confirm, which are the ones that we have reviewed and confirm that they're whale calls. Uh, There are also some that are what we call false positives where the computer thought it was a whale call, but it actually wasn't. Mm -hmm. And we use uh, those sets to retrain the model to go and... you know, what's happening here is not a whale call. So don't let us know about it. And, you know, that's where our transient calls end up and our bird calls end up and our squeaky ships end up. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, you know, people uh, can access that. And, you know, when um, whales have come by, you know, it'll get stored in the confirmed section and people can... uh, click on the calls there and listen to them.
1: That's awesome. Um, So you've touched on some of your other projects that you've done with the ORCAs. Um, What, um, have you done any other recent projects with the Southern Residents through ORCA Conservancy? Uh,
2: Let's see. Um, We've been collaborating with a group called Oceans Initiative and, and you know, trying to look at uh, what it would take to recover southern residents. So, uh, for example, one of the options in the Klamath was to weave the dams in and try to manage water better. And you know, we found that uh, even if they did the best water management method possible um, with the dams in uh, it would not increase the fish runs enough to benefit southern residents so you know that was kind of a further argument that yes the dams really needed to come down because the little things they could do you know like changing spill regimes uh, just wouldn't be enough to make a difference Uh, so you know looking at you know what some of the options are and saying hypothetically if you do this uh, what difference will it make to the southern residents and you know similarly with the um, you know fishing policy where you're trying to look at um, you know how much fish uh, you need to set aside for southern residents before you allow fishing and um, again you know, even if you shut down fishing altogether, uh, it's not going to be enough to recover southern residents because we've destroyed so much of the inland habitat where salmon spawn and grow up. Um, you know, it tells you that um, you, know, you really need to focus your efforts inland rather than out at sea. Uh, but there are, you know, ways people can fish that will let the whales have first crack meaning the fish density that the whales are feeding in will be higher and then uh, you let the fishermen fish after the whales and then they can uh, you know, still stay in business mm-hmm. and then uh, you know, as the inland habitat improves you can allow the fishermen to take more fish and so you're know, looking at that um, you know we're Working with Washington's Department of Ecology to help them model um, the risk of oil spills and um, you know what that'll do to Southern residents. Uh, been involved in the past, looking at ways to keep Southern residents out of oil spills. So um, you know we're kind of looking at a lot of things. And then you know again, some of our past research was. Uh, collecting blow samples from killer whales mm-hmm. and looking at the pathogens in there and uh, what antibiotics they were resistant to. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that helps us plan for uh, dealing with a stranded whale. Like um, you know, if there were the political will to help K21, um, you know, we have some ideas about what antibiotics are likely to work and. Which ones are not because the bacteria are already resistant to them.
0: Mm-hmm. So
2: that might uh, let his treatment start earlier. And you know, for a whale that's near death, like uh, he was observed to be, you know, having that extra day or two of effective treatment can be the difference between life and death.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, but
2: you know, so far we've taken a hands-off approach with southern residents so that. Uh, Whales like Muna have been allowed to die. Whereas the intervention approach we've taken with northern residents and offshores has allowed us to save whales from those populations when they've been in trouble.
1: Um, Why are you guys taking a hands-off approach with the southern residents?
2: Uh, Well, Orca Conservancy is not happy with that approach, but It kind of dates back to the capture operations that uh, had a devastating effect on southern residents. And, and, you know, there are a lot of people who remember those and um, are concerned that if you brought a whale into captivity to give it medical care, uh, they're concerned it would not find its way back to the wild. And, uh, you know, Orca Conservancy is familiar with. Counter examples like you know Springer was in captivity for a few months, and then once she was healthy, she was sent back to her pod. And uh, we had whales that were entrapped in Barnes Lake in Alaska, and a couple of aquariums got involved uh, to rescue them. Mm-hmm. And you know all those whales went back to the wild. They were not brought into captivity, and you know even though they had. A breeding age male there which would have been you know highly prized if he were brought into captivity but you know the aquarium said we're going to do what's best for the whales and uh, you know we think they're still healthy enough to survive in the wild so we're going to leave them in the wild and then you know again and then, i guess Our locals were willing to take the chance with a northern resident that it would actually go back to the wild. And, you know, we had uh, three aquariums and a Navy veterinarian involved in taking care of her. And, you know, she went back to the wild. Um, But, you know, with Luna, it was kind of hands off and, you know, wait for southern residents to... Reunite with him, and uh, you know, of course, they never did. He was killed by a ship um, before uh, he got back to the pod. So, um, you know, I think J50 was another whale that potentially could have been treated, but uh, you know, they decided they wanted to treat her in the wild, and you know, that was unsuccessful. And you know, that's another area where these hydrophones might. Helpful because they would have allowed us to track her at night, and that way the veterinarians would have known where to go first thing in the morning and would have made it more likely that they could administer the medication on schedule. So, um, yeah. Anyway, um, you know, I think it's more the, you know, fighting the wars of the 70s and not realizing, you know, that was you know, almost 40 years ago that, you know, that was still going on and, and, you know, aquariums are not interested in uh, bringing new whales into captivity anymore. And, you know, know, they want to help the wild populations and, and, you know, just need the chance to build on all the veterinary experience they've accumulated over, you know, over 40 years to be able to take care of the wild whales and you know cappuccino you know might have another 15 years left if he gets medical treatment before he passes away mm-hmm. or you know he may be dead now or he may have days to live uh, if he does not get treatment yeah um, you know or if the conservancy feels you know things are urgent now and we need to do everything we can and uh, you know, temporary captivity to try to save lives uh, is you know worth it. Um, but you know, there's not a consensus among um, you know other people concerned with southern residents that that's the right way to go. So um, you know, for now, the other groups are being more influential with the regulators than we are.
0: Hmm.
1: Are there not legal protections that say that aquariums can't take whales?
2: Um, Yeah, you cannot take an endangered species into captivity for public display. So, um, you know, you're allowed to do rescues, but there's the, you know, you need to get legal permission to, do that uh, before you get started and, and you know NIMS has withheld that permission for southern residents so far
0: mm-hmm.
2: so you know they did consult the public back when J50 was having trouble and you know they got enough opposition that they didn't want to stick their necks out and allow that as an approach um, but, and, you know it's kind of the earlier you intervene, the more likely you are to be successful. So um, yeah, you know, people have gotten very good at detecting peanut head, and mm. you know we know that when things are that far along, the chance of a whale living very long after that are pretty small. Mm-hmm. So um, you know with springer we, we were able to show that you can take a whale in poor condition and treat her and uh, send her back to the wild. And, and um, you know, she can reassimilate uh, with a group if she's only been gone for a short period of time. And so, you know, it's kind of like we have the technology and, you know, obviously there are some diseases we're not going to be able to treat successfully. And, you know, there's some diseases that, uh, you know, require medical care for life. And I think that's one of the big concerns that a lot of the other groups have is, you know, you may get a whale that you can keep alive, but, you know, if you put it back in the wild, it won't live very long afterwards. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, you know, what do you do with that whale? Do you sentence it to death by releasing it or do you sentence it to a life in captivity? Um, And, you know, they kind of, would rather say, uh, you know, we had nothing to do with what happened. So, you know, Mm -hmm. if it died in the wild, you know, it's a natural death, even if it died of the disease that people exposed it to.
0: Oh, that's frustrating.
2: Yeah. So, anyway, um, you know, with Springer, we did get the opportunity to intervene and we did it right. Um, But, you know, we haven't had the opportunity to do similar things for Southern residents. Mm.
1: Do you think, you know, obviously it's not going to happen. No one's going to intervene with K-21, but do you think that K-21 would have a chance if that opportunity was presented?
2: Um, it's kind of hard to say because we don't know what's wrong with him. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he's he was in really bad shape when... We first saw that uh, something was wrong. So, you know, it may be too late by the time we realized anything was wrong. But, you know, for a lot of these whales, we recognize they're in trouble and they've still got a couple months to live. And, um, you know, if you can start taking care of a sick cetacean while it's still in the water, uh, you know, your chances are a lot better than if you wait till they wash up on the beach. And, and you know, and, you know, obviously once they're dead, you can't do anything for them. So
1: yeah, um,
2: but you know, we do have um, you know the surface photos where we can get an idea of what condition they're in, and the drone photos you know give us early warnings about. Which whales are likely to be a concern, but um, you know you start picking up concern when the whale still has a chance to recover on its own. So you would not want to intervene. Uh, at least it tells you, you know, which whales you need to keep track of and keep an eye on, and you know, see whether they're getting better or not.
1: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um... You know, so obviously, you know, K-21 is just a reminder of the dire state of the Southern residents. What do you think can be done right now to help them?
2: Okay, well, there are two things we can do that are quick fixes. Uh, One is limit noise exposure. Mm -hmm. And uh, the second is to relocate a lot of the fishing operations so that Mm -hmm. whales have, the opportunity to feed on unfished runs, and then the fishermen have a chance to do their fishing when uh, the fish are riverward of the whales, or you know they're going after runs that are not terribly important to southern residents. Um, and then you know we have some middle-term things like uh, you can remove a dam, and maybe in ten years you'll. Uh, see the fish runs uh, start to get bigger and mm-hmm. uh, grow exponentially in those rivers mm-hmm. um, you know we also have things like uh, culvert removal uh, that can offer pretty quick benefits so you know culvert removal the benefits tend to be small so it's a matter of removing a lot of them um, you know there' are also restoration projects like they're Tens of thousands of small-scale restoration projects that can be done that you know would each improve water quality a little bit and give us a few more salmon. But you know, if you get a hundred thousand or a hundred extra fish in tens of thousands of places, you know that's hundreds of thousands or a million extra fish for the whales to feed on. So you know, that's the kind of thing you can be doing. Absolutely. And then. You know, preventing disasters is another thing that's important to do. So, you know, working to prevent oil spills and preventing chemical spills are important. And and then, then, you know, it's kind of, you know, getting started on everything now. And, you know, the quick fixes will benefit the whales right away. And then. You know, that should allow the population to grow a little bit. And then after it's grown, then, you know, there needs to be more improvements So the things that, you know, take, you know, 10 to 20 years to kick in, um, you know, we'll start having the benefit. And then, you know, things like
0: eliminating
2: toxic chemicals from the environment, you know, it can be 40 years from when you ban a chemical till whales see the okay. real benefits of that. So um, you know, a lot of the flame retardants we're putting in the environment now are toxic to whales, and those are building up. So you know, we could you know ban the most toxic of those, uh, which Washington did around a few years back. Um, and you know, that'll be something that benefits them very far down the road. But you know, it's going to take a long time for the whale population to build back up to a safe level, um, even if we do everything right. So doing things that won't help for 40 years are still worth doing because we're still gonna be recovering whales 40 years from now if we keep them around that long.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, What can the public do to help the whales?
2: Uh, there are a lot of things the public can do. Uh, one is live a whale friendly lifestyle. So, you know, minimize how much driving you do, minimize your use of toxic chemicals, uh, minimize your use of energy and water. Um, you know, also you can help out with restoration events. So if you uh, live in a coastal watershed that, uh, support salmon or could support salmon, uh, you can help the groups that are trying to restore riparian habitat there. Uh, If you live inland, uh, then, um, you know, you can donate to those groups so that uh, they can remove invasive species and plant native species. And, you know, those native plants will provide shade to cool the water and offset the effects of climate change. And uh, they'll take toxic chemicals out of the stormwater runoff uh, so that the fish are not exposed to those toxins and uh, you know, the whales do not bioaccumulate those toxins. Uh, you can also get in touch with your politicians and say, you know, I do care uh, what your position is on dam removal. And I do care whether you invest money in buying land for restoration so that we improve the water quality of our rivers. And, you know, we do uh, want the whales and Native Americans to have first crack at the small amount of fish that are left. And, Mm -hmm. um, you know, the descendants of colonizers uh, can, you know, fish on what's left and, you know, we'll manage fishing so that, you know, as many fishes can spawn successfully and make it into the rivers so that you know we build populations but you know a lot of our rivers are already degraded so that you know we can have more fish coming back uh, than can spawn successfully so that's you know those are the fish that we can harvest and uh, not have a negative impact on the whales and you know and you know Again, you know, we want everybody to come out ahead and, you know, we're not saying, you know, we should uh, boycott Chinook uh, in stores and restaurants. We're saying we want Chinook to be fished in a way that does not harm the whales. And, we know, that there are ways to do that. And, uh, you know, we'd like to work with the fishing industry to make sure that they're as successful as they can be. we do as well for the whales as we can and then we do all these salmon recovery projects you know like dam removal and restoration and culvert removal so that there are more fish for both people and whales so um you know voting for candidates who will take positions that help the whales uh, will be important um
1: Absolutely. So, yeah,
2: there are a lot of things people can be doing, and um, you know, if you happen to own a waterfront property, then you know you can plant trees on your own property to help shade the water and um, you know allow the fish to thrive. And um, you know, if you don't, you can plant trees on public land or. And, you know private property that the owner is supportive of that but you know they may not personally have the skills to do it right and then um, you know said if you live in Ohio um, you know it probably makes more sense to send a chap than to use the energy to come out to the west coast to right do restoration but you know it's a way to do your part and you know carbon dioxide is a nasty problem for whales uh, because, you know, it warms uh, the climate and that reduces salmon survival. And it also contributes to ocean acidification, which uh, prevents the base of the food chain from doing well. And, um, you know, those two things together, a real problem for salmon this year. Uh, you know, when there are not many salmon around, the whales have a hard time uh, finding enough to eat. And, you know, that makes it hard for a whale like Cappuccino to get well in time to recover. Absolutely. Fat so, um, whales have a much better chance of surviving an illness than thin whales do. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Um, the one question that I ask everybody is what can we learn from the whales?
2: Um, I think we can learn a w- lot from the whales uh, because they're very much like we are so um, you know there's a lot of news about human history where we're discovering new species of humans and how they may have lived together and bred together and uh, interacted with each other and you know, we have a similar situation with killer whales right now where we have a lot of different species and subspecies that are interacting with each other um, killer whales are one of the few mammals that learn the calls they make so we have an animal model that uh, learns how to make sounds the same way people do so there are parallels there that we can learn from. Um, there are uh, animals that engage in altruistic behavior, meaning they do things that are good for somebody else, uh, not just themselves. Mm-hmm. And, and you know that's something that was very important in human evolution, and you know we've kind of gotten away from that in the last few years in our society. That you know, they're a reminder of you know friendlier times and uh, how we could interact. Um, you know, there are probably some medical things we can learn from whales. Uh, for example, we know that bowheads live for hundreds of years, and understanding the genetic mechanisms that underlie long life may help us do things like prevent cancer. Um, you know, they're also uh, you know, Very able to heal. So, you know, if we got bitten by a shark and, um, you know, did not have medical treatment. You know, we'd get infections and die from those. But, you know, uh, killer whales do get bitten by sharks and survive. And, um, you know, the transients get bitten by the seals and sea lions that they're trying to eat and they survive those wounds. So, you know, we can learn you know, what is it in their immune system that. Uh, allows them to survive those things. right. Uh, we also know that they can die for long periods of time, so they have ways of dealing with low oxygen levels. And you know as we encounter diseases like COVID that cause humans to have extraordinarily low oxygen levels, you know we could learn something from whale blood that uh, would help us uh, allow humans to survive diseases like that better. So, you know, I think we have a lot to learn, um, you know, both in terms of uh, medical things and in terms of psychological things for how we behave and why we behave the way we do and, and, you know, kind of options we have to get along better with each other.
1: Absolutely. Yeah, I definitely would agree with that. And I think that's been a consistent answer among a lot of the people that I've had on here is the way that they live um but yeah I totally agree with you do you have any final thoughts for our listeners
2: um you know I think the the southern resident uh population is in urgent need of help and and, you know they're Dying the death of a thousand cuts, and that means there are a lot of different things we need to do. Uh, the good news is the treatment for the death of a thousand cuts is a thousand band-aids, and pretty much anybody is capable of applying a band-aid. So the you know, there are things everybody can do, and you know, the cumulative effects of millions of people working for the recovery. Uh, Can be very valuable just as the cumulative effects of the negative things that millions of people can do have been harmful to the whales. Uh, So that means that everybody has a role to play. And, you know, as somebody who's spent 40 years working with whales, there are probably things I can do that, you know, for example, you could not. But, um, you know, there are a lot of things that you know, you can do, and, you know, if you're a two-year-old that can shovel sand, then you're a two-year-old who can shovel mulch at a restoration project. And if you're a 70-year-old that can bake cookies, then, you know, you can bake cookies for people who are doing a restoration project. And, you know, maybe the, you know, young adults who are in excellent physical condition that can do the hard labor, you know, digging out blackberry roots and planting trees and things like that. But, um, you know, even at the ends of the physical fitness spectrum, there are things that people can do uh, because there are so many things that can be done that are helpful. And, you know, if you're a 12-year-old, you can nag your parents about, know using too much energy or too much water and, and you know you can also uh, you know contact your elected officials like we had a couple classes of first graders uh, right there state senator asking that uh, habitat be put into protected status and she was impressed enough with their letters that uh, you know she traveled um, you know 75 miles to visit the school and allow each student to read the letters to her individually. Oh, that's cool. So she took the time to make the trip to visit the class and, uh, you know, made the kids feel special by letting them read their letters to her. And, you know, first graders can barely read and write. So, you know, it was kind of, they were pushing themselves to the limit. But uh, Then she went back to the state capitol and, put a million dollars in the budget for the project they were asking her to support. So, you know, there are roles for kids in this recovery effort. And, you know, I think if we all get in it together and support each other and, and, you know, do what we're good at, then, um, you know, we have a chance to recover this population.
1: Absolutely. I totally agree with you. I think everybody can do something. Yeah, that's awesome. I definitely appreciate you coming on the podcast and sharing about your work and the ways that we can help the Southern residents. Um, So thank you for being here.
0: You're welcome. Awesome.